When I graduated seminary, I was called to my first church that I would serve after seminary. And it was just across the Long Island Sound from here. It was on the north shore of Long Island, a little white steeple church like this one. But it was a church unlike this one as well in many ways. It did not have that infusion of the Holy Spirit that we enjoy here. The senior pastor that I worked for did not preach the gospel every Sunday. And the numbers, the membership of the church was dwindling. It's what many people would refer to as a dying church. It was pretty discouraging for me as a young pastor. I remember one day I was up here at the front of the church and I looked around the sanctuary and I counted eight people in church that Sunday. And I hear stories from many of you often about churches like that in your neighborhoods or in towns here in the Northeast, churches that are dwindling or dying or just kind of decaying one way or another. And it would be easy for us to think that Christianity generally is doing the same. It's sort of a dying thing. It's not like it was 100 years ago. But I want to give us a little bit of perspective on that this morning and remind us that Christianity worldwide is actually still growing mightily. I want to show you this graphic here. It talks about the size of global Christianity over the last 100 years. This number here in the top left, 611 million, that was how many Christians there were on planet Earth in the year 1910. A hundred years later, in 2010, the number here is almost 2.2 billion. So in the last 100 years, we've grown almost four times in size globally. It's true that in places like here in the Northeast, it's easy to think of Christianity as this dwindling thing. But in reality, ever since the time Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again, there has not been a century in history that the church has not grown and grown and grown. So we can be encouraged by that. Today we come to our last chapter in the book of Acts. We've been looking at Acts all summer. It's the birth of the church. And in the last chapter that we are looking at today, we see some of the seeds that would be planted that would grow into this global movement that we've just seen illustrated by those statistics. It also shows us individually what it's like, what it means to belong to this movement, what it means to be a Christian. So we're going to see some things in here that not only would launch this global movement that we enjoy being a part of now, but also teach us what it means to be a Christian, to be part of this movement. In this text, there's a reality check for us, a warning, and a promise. Reality check, a warning, and a promise. Let's begin going through it again today so we can see these things, learning about this movement that we are a part of. Let's begin with verse 17, which is where our reading kicks in today. Verse 17, it's talking about Paul. It's the end of his journey here in Acts, and he finds himself in Rome. Verse 17 says, After three days he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. Now there's two people groups who are mentioned here in this one verse, the Jews and the Romans. 
It's interesting for Paul because Paul was born in a Roman city, so he's a Roman citizen, but he's also Jewish by ethnicity and by religion. He in some ways has a dual citizenship. And for most of his life, that worked out really well for him. He could call on his Roman citizenship when he needed it, but he also was a um, successful leader of the Jews. Famously, Paul is the one who was persecuting some of the early Christians and then converted to Christ. And that's when things started getting messy for him. When he decided to follow Christ with all his heart and all his mind and all his strength, well, suddenly his two people groups, the Romans and the Jews, disowned him. They were upset by him. Where they used to accept him as being one of their own, now they rejected him. So here he is, Paul is on trial for his supposed crimes, and the Romans hate him, and the Jews hate him. I've been studying this a little bit, wondering why it was that the Romans hated the early Christians so much. And what I've learned in my research is that there were really two reasons the Romans hated the Christians. They're both kind of surprising and interesting to me. The first one is that Christians refused to honor Caesar as Lord. There was a plurality of religions in the Roman Empire. You could worship practically any god you wanted to, as long as you also recognized that Caesar, or the, you know, the leader of the Roman Empire, was Lord, was the leader of all these things. And that, that required participating in some of the national um, festivals and parades and ceremonies. So you could worship whomever as long as you showed up for those festivals honoring the empire. Well, Christians started reading their scriptures and believing that Jesus was the Lord, and so they refused to surrender to Caesar as Lord. This got them into all kinds of trouble. If they ever were in court and they had to swear by Caesar, they would say, I can't do that. I have one Lord. So that would get them into all kinds of legal trouble. But the second reason that Romans hated the early Christians was that Christians kind of messed up the social hierarchy of the Roman Empire. There were masters and there were slaves. There were men and there were women in the Roman Empire. There was this hierarchy. But Christians came along and they had a text, for example, what it says in the New Testament, that if you are in Christ, you are one. There is no longer slave nor free, male nor female, Jew nor Greek. So the Christian community started elevating former slaves and women to leadership positions. There were women leaders in the early church. There were former slaves who were fully participating in the life of the community. The Romans didn't like that. They didn't trust that. So they hated the Christians for kind of messing up their hierarchies. So Christians kind of took their movement underground. They would meet in homes privately. And then all kinds of rumors started about them. Some of the Romans would say, what are you doing in there in that house church? And the Christians would say, Well, we're eating the body and blood of our Lord. And the Romans would say, they're cannibals. (laughs) And there were all these rumors that were spread. Or they'd meet a husband and a wife who are Christians. And the husband and wife would say, this is my sister in Christ. You know what the Romans would say then? Incest. And all these rumors were spread about the Christians. So Paul is hated by his own people group, the Romans. He's also hated by the Jews. We've covered that topic a lot here from this pulpit. When Paul came out and said, Jesus is our Messiah, that was unacceptable to many of the Jewish believers and leaders because Jesus was an unacceptable Messiah to them because he didn't overthrow the Romans politically, militarily. 
So here's Paul totally finding himself alienated from his people groups. And I share all that with you. I know I went to great length to describe that all to you, but I share that with you because this is our reality check as Christ followers. We too might lose some of our social standing if we follow Christ like Paul did with all our hearts and all our mind and all our strength. You might have a mom's group at school that just maybe turns their back on you a little bit if you really start following Christ. I wish you would stop talking about Jesus so much. You might have a group of colleagues at work who just wish you weren't so into that religion stuff. This is our reality check. I was talking this week with a guy here in town. Some of you know who he is. He famously used to make millions and millions of dollars and then was arrested and went to jail for four years. And now he's out of jail, and he really met the Lord, though, while he was in prison. And I had lunch with him again this week, and we were talking, and he shared something fascinating with me. Obviously, when he was convicted of his crimes and went to jail, he lost a lot of friends, obviously. And they, to this day, wish he would stop talking about the things that led him to jail because some of them don't want to look bad by association. But then he shared something with me. He said, you know, I've lost just as many friends because now I follow Christ. Some of my friends would wish I would stop talking about that. Isn't that interesting? You can lose friends by being a criminal, or you can lose more friends by following Christ. This is what Paul was experiencing, and actually this is what all of us experience. When we belong to the Christian movement, we belong to Christ, it might alienate us from some of the social structures that we might have relied on before we started following Christ. 1 Peter 2, verse 10, describes who we are if we belong to this movement. I want you to see this. It says this in 1 Peter, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. In other words, you're in. You're in the group of people who are belonging to God by His mercy. And then verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Sojourners and exiles. This is us now in this world if we follow Christ. The word sojourner simply means temporary resident. If you're in a place for a temporary amount of time, you're a sojourner. We are temporary residents of earth and of the United States and of Connecticut or New York or wherever you live. And then it also uses this word exile. An exile is someone who really doesn't belong in the country that they're in. They belong somewhere else. They've been exiled. This is a description of us if we are Christians. We're sojourners. We're exiled. We're just passing through. And this might alienate us from some of those clubs or circles that we used to belong to. This is our reality check, folks. Even so, if we are alienated, we belong to this new group. We belong to the family of God. And we can live out the gospel This is what Paul was doing. Even though he's on trial in Rome, he's being alienated from his people groups, he's still living out his faith. Verse 23 and 24 begins to describe that for us. Let's pick up the story there. Verse 23, When they had pointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God, and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others 
disbelieved. Others disbelieved. Remember I said we'd have a reality check, a warning, and a promise. This is where the warning comes in. Some disbelieved. Why did they disbelieve? He was declaring the greatest truth ever spoken in human history that God had come into the world in the person of Jesus Christ, that he had dealt with the consequences of all our sins by dying the death we deserve on the cross and then rising again to conquer our greatest enemy, which is death. Paul was simply explaining that over and over, and some people heard it and they disbelieved. They refused to accept the gospel. Why? Well, it explains in the next few verses this concept that some people have dulled hearts or stopped ears or veils over their eyes, and they can't perceive this truth that's being spoken to them. Verse 25 and following. Disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Paul is quoting Isaiah when he's speaking to his Jewish brothers and sisters, and this offends them deeply. Paul says, the Holy Spirit was right about you guys. Your hearts would be dull, your eyes would be closed, your ears would be stopped. It would be easy for us to read this text and and simply think about it as this was the problem for those Jewish people. But in reality, all of us, this is the warning, all of us can harden our own hearts Any one of us could have that veil drawn down before our eyes and our ears stopped from receiving and perceiving the gospel, the truth of Jesus. This can happen to any one of us. You know what it says in Hebrews chapter 3? I'm Hebrews chapter 13. It says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Every Sunday morning, your pastors pray for you. We pray for you every day, but especially on Sunday mornings, we gather in the prayer chapel. And one of the things one of us always prays Sunday after Sunday is we say, Lord, if there's anybody who's coming here today with a hard heart, I pray that you would soften that heart. If there's anybody who's coming here today with stopped up ears, I pray that you would open their ears. If there's anybody who's coming with that veil down, will you lift the veil? We pray this every Sunday. We trust that God will do that. I can't do it. The other pastors can't do it, but the Holy Spirit can. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It says, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. I'm just going to stop right now and pray the same thing. Holy Spirit, will you lift the veil? If there is cynicism or pain 
or woundedness or doubt or dullness or depression, I pray that you would come and lift those things from us so that we can behold you. We can behold you face to face. We can see you, what you've done for us on the cross, who you are for us in this moment. Lift the veil, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The good news is that the Holy Spirit does lift the veil. He gives us the ability to behold him, and it's been happening now for over 2,000 years. I showed you those statistics. The 600 million to 2.2 billion didn't happen through clever marketing strategies. It happened by a movement of the Holy Spirit. Some believe, and that's literally what it says in verse 28 as the story continues. Paul says, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. I love this verse in the Bible. There's a couple of places in the Bible where you and I are mentioned. This is one of them. This is talking about us. There's another one where Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, blessed are you who believe in me, but blessed are all those who believe in me on account of you. That's us. (laughs) And so is this. I'm going to take this thing global. I'm going to take this thing to the Gentiles. They will listen. In this room this morning is full of people that are talked about right here in this verse. We have ears to hear. You know, Jesus used to say that when he gave some of his parables, he would say, those who have ears to hear, let them hear this. And my prayer this morning is that all of us would have ears to hear and all of us would be emboldened to continue by the Spirit's power spreading this thing wherever we go. Do you know where this whole movement is headed? Where the Christian church is going? Don't believe the cynical view that it's just dwindling and dying and it was this nice thing that people used to do. No, this thing is going unto eternity. There's a little window that we get into our future in Revelation. God gives a vision to John and he gives a little window of where this whole thing is headed. Revelation chapter 7. It's John's view of what he sees happening in the heavens for all of eternity. And he says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. More than 2.2 billion. A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Can you picture it? Billions and billions of us. This movement that Jesus started, that Paul obviously had an instrumental role in expanding, has not stopped growing from the first day it began. I'm speaking emphatically about this because I want us to be encouraged by that. We don't belong to a passing fad. 
We don't belong to a dwindling, dying thing. We're part of something that's going on to eternity. Cheer up. <laughs> Not a week goes by, I don't get an email from one of you that, about what's happening in our nation and how we used to be so much more faithful. And yes, that's all true, but look at the statistics and look at the word. We're part of an unstoppable movement. You know what Jesus said to Peter? Some of you know it. He said, Peter, on this rock, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You think what's happening in America right now is going to stop God's church? Jesus said otherwise. So what's our response to this? Boldness. Look at Paul in these last couple of verses. Verse 30 and 31. This is Paul about to go to trial Paul's going to spend almost the rest of his days in prison, and he's going to die a martyr's death. He's going to be beheaded years from now. If anybody had reason to be discouraged, it was him, not us. And look, look at these last two verses of the book of Acts. Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. I wonder if what gave Paul his boldness and his confidence was that he had his eyes fixed on Christ. He knew the way this story ends. And I wonder if God gave him a little glimpse of rooms like this. One day, Paul, if you persevere, if you continue with boldness and without hindrance, this thing's going to keep growing unto eternity. And I think the Holy Spirit is speaking the same word to us this morning. Be bold. Live your faith. You might alienate yourself from some of your social circles, yes. But know that you are part of a family of God. You are part of a movement. We are part of a movement that is unstoppable. Let's live in light of that future hope. As our nation changes, let's keep our eyes fixed on the prize. Amen.